Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. Today's episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money around the world, which is huge for travelers. I've been a customer and a fan for 10 years. The Wise account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, and they do it all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This service has been so critical for me in my life as a traveler, as a nomad, as somebody living abroad, and you can join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account can help you out on the road at wise.com slash travel. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com slash travel, or download the app. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I totally understand that impulse to not hyper-specialize and really focus more on defining a mission for yourself in the world and pursuing that mission authentically in whatever form makes most sense to you. That was a clip from my interview today with Nanjala Niabola. She's the author of a new book called Traveling While Black. We're celebrating Black History Month today on the podcast. I'm so excited to bring you this interview. We've got a ton packed into this show. First of all, I'm going to share with you one of my travel heroes, and then you're going to dive into this conversation with Nanjala. We cover so much ground, everything from giving back as a traveler to the impact that travel can have on your relationship with fear. We talk about privilege. There's a lot of destination stuff in here. Uh, Just a ton. So I know you're going to love the interview portion. I've also got a shout out to somebody in this community who gave me a suggestion for what to do with my patch collection. (laughs) So you'll hear that. And loads more. We got to get into it because we got a lot to cover. It's happening now. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here. And... Welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out. Letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Welcome, my friend. I hope this finds you healthy and happy. I know a lot of travelers are starting to either think about getting out there again or even starting to get out there. My buddy Travis and his family's down in Costa Rica. Uh, I've heard some from some of you in the listening community that are out and about. Uh, some of you have been <laughs> out and about because you don't have anywhere to live. Shout out to all the nomads out there that have been keeping it going during this pandemic and just finding places to uh, stay safe and hole up. And we're thinking about everybody out there in the listening community. And uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I do have a shout out to somebody who dropped me a voicemail. I love to hear from listeners. And if you haven't checked in at all, 
Shoot me a line, jason at zerototravel.com. I ask for voice messages if you can give me one and you can just open up the audio app and send one. Or if you go to zerototravel.com slash speak, you can easily leave a message and that's what this guest did. And uh, I'll share a little bit about that uh, at the end because she uh, she gave me a, a suggestion for my country's patch collection. And uh, I think it's a good one. It was nice to hear from her. So that's coming up later. And of course, this wonderful interview with Nanjala. Before we get into that, I do want to uh, talk about one of my travel heroes. You know, it's Black History Month. And I remember coming across this story last year and thinking, wow, what guts, what determination, what uh, bravery this person had. Uh, this is a woman uh, named Bessie Stringfield. She lived from, they're not sure, 1911 or 1912 to 1993. So she's no longer alive. I'm going to read you some uh, a little bit about her from her Wikipedia page. Uh, she was an American motorcyclist who was the first African-American woman to ride across the United States solo and was one of the few civilian motorcycle dispatch riders for the U.S. Army during World War II. She's credited with breaking down barriers for both women and Jamaican-American motorcyclists. Stringfield was inducted into the Motorcycle Hall of Fame, the award bestowed by the American Motor Cyclist Association for superior achievement by a female motorcyclist is named in her honor. Bessie Stringfield, and one of my travel heroes. Uh, if you go down to uh, read a bit more on the page, just put yourself in her shoes, right? It is, uh, what's the year? 1930, okay? At the age of 16, she taught herself to ride a motorcycle. That was in 1928. And then in 1930, at the age of 19, she started traveling across the United States. And according to Wikipedia, she made seven more long-distance trips in the U.S. and eventually rode through the 48 states, Europe, Brazil, and Haiti. And during this time, she actually earned money from performing motorcycle stunts in carnival shows. It says, due to her skin color, Stringfield was often denied accommodation while traveling, so she would sleep on her motorcycle at filling stations. Due to her sex, she was also refused prizes in flat track races she entered. So think about this, just taking a solo trip like this and traveling around on a motorcycle is an adventure in and of itself. Uh, I'm sure even more so back in 1930. Now add to that the racial stuff she had to deal with, the racism and being a woman, which was uh, at that time, it's probably not the most common thing that people would see. But what, a, what an incredible person. <laughs> I mean, this is why she is one of my travel heroes. So if you've never uh, heard of her name, I just wanted to give some love to Bessie Stringfield. And you can look her up on her Wikipedia page. She had a fascinating uh, personal life, some really interesting uh, stuff about her. And wow, I mean, talk about love of travel, right? Doing it for the love of travel, despite all those odds and you know, figuring out a way to to make your travel dreams a reality, I guess. You know, I, I, I wish, oh man, I, I would love to sit down and have a meal with Bessie and hear some stories from her. That would be a dream. Obviously, that's not possible. She's no longer alive, but definitely one of my biggest travel heroes and a little bit of black travel history for you here during Black History Month. Now, Let's get into the interview today and stick around on the other side. One of the things that comes up in this interview is this idea of changing your relationship to fear, how travel can do that. And stick around 
for the after the interview segment because I'll talk a little bit about that, share some personal thoughts. We'll leave you with a quote and, of course, a shout out to somebody in the listening community. So let's get into the interview now. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you on the other side, my friend. So pleased and honored to welcome my guest today, Nanjala Niabola, who has a new book out called Traveling While Black, which is an essay collection reflecting on race and human mobility in various forms. Nanjala, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, you have a beautiful name. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a it's a name I had never heard before. Do you know? Is there like a meaning behind the name? Or it, there is, there is. Um, it comes from my community in Western Kenya, and it means a girl born during the dry season because I was born during the dry season. Um, so in our communities, uh, we don't really mark time by weeks or months or whatever. We mark it by events. Um, so children get named by what time of the year they were born or what was happening in the world at the time um, when they were born. And then sort of time is measured relative to a person's age. So you would know, you know, the this person was born um, and you would say like, oh, it's been seven years since this person was born. And that would sort of give you a sense of time. Um, so most of the kids um, who come from the community where I come from, we are named for seasons time of the year events, things like that. Does that impact your sense of time now? Like in the, in the working world? Uh, you know, it, it doesn't really affect my sense of time. I think what it does affect is, um, you know, it's, I think that Nanjali is an easy name, <laughs> but I, I noticed a lot of people struggle with it. And because it's also, it's a very heavy name. It actually, the, the full literal transla translation is a girl born during the time of hunger. And so it's a heavy name. And uh, I remember Warson Shira, who is this Kenyan, British, Somali poet. Uh, she's brilliant. She has this poem where she says, you know, give your daughters difficult names. Um, and I, 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 it's a long, long poem about, you know, preparing women I guess, for the world and things like that. And I've always held that poem very close to my heart because I feel like it's not, that's the, that's the kind of name that I have. Um, and it's the kind of name that forces, as she says in the poem, it forces people to stop and think about how they're speaking to you or what they're saying to you. And it forces people to stop and think. So in that way, yes, it definitely affects my sense of uh, being in the world, but uh, no, I mean, I'm I'm an urban kid, so it doesn't really affect my my sense of time. I do have a terrible sense of time, though. <laughs> just just for the record, <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. Maybe it's a traveler thing. I don't know. It's a traveler. Um, thing. Yeah. 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 You mentioned uh, you, the words you used as a heavy name, and I'm certainly some of the subject matter that you take on, not only in your book, but just through your work. I mean, you have such varied experience. I've, I've been reading through the book and, and watching some videos uh, of you. I watched your TED Talk and some of the other talks you've given. And I mean, you could say you're a writer, you're an activist, you're an, a political analyst, all these things. I wasn't really quite sure how to describe your many talents and, and the, the, the work that you do in the world. So I, I want to ask you, how would you describe your work? Um, I'm a person who is trying 
who likes understanding how things work and who is trying to use that knowledge to make the world better for as many people as possible. And that sometimes takes me on interesting uh, tangents because I just don't, I don't believe in the idea of specialization or hyper-specialization. I never have. When I was in school, I was very good at sciences um, and now I'm a writer. So um, I, I just, I feel like in the modern world, we are always being pushed to be very good at one thing. And I'm just not always sure that that's the best thing. I mean, look at some of the biggest thinkers in, in history. You know, you look at someone like Michelangelo. Michelangelo was an artist and an inventor and a writer. And, and all of those things spoke to each other, right? All of those things made him better. Maya Angelou was a dancer, a poet, a political activist, um, and, and did all of these things that spoke to each other and made her whole, the sum total of her life experience deeper. Edward Said was a filmmaker, was a concert pianist, was a liter literary critic, was a politician. So I feel like I, I, I totally understand that impulse to not hyper-specialize and really focus more on defining a mission for yourself in the world and pursuing that mission authentically and whatever form makes most sense to you. And, and that's how I end up doing a lot of different things because they all bring something new to my, the sum total of my experience, just like when you're traveling, right? Um, if you just go to a place and only do one thing, are you really getting the full experience of that place? Or do you have to do different things, you know, go to the theater, then go to a show and then walk around the streets and then have dinner in a high-end restaurant and then have dinner on a street food cart, things like that, in order to get a sense of what a place is. I kind of think about life in, in similar terms. Hmm. Yeah, and the, the idea of kind of filtering these things through through your one mission statement, right? Or, or like the driving force behind all of your work, I, I think is such a great way to approach it. Because a lot of times, you know, when you're a curious person and you you want to impact the world in different ways. You have different things that are speaking to you, right? And and sometimes, you know, you're you're still only one person, there's only so much time, right? So you have to choose to ignore some of those things and listen to some of them. And, you know, for you, I mean, writing this book, what was the driving force for that? Like how did that rise above all the other things you may have done during that time? Um the book represents it's also very eclectic. Um, approaches in terms of the different approaches that it takes because it, it reflects the eclectic experiences that I've had with travel and human ability. So I've worked um, as a refu in refugee law, so I have a law degree. Um, I've worked in policy work, but I've also been to about 70 different countries over the last 12 years. And all of those things might seem completely disconnected from a removed place, but for me, as the person who's living in them, I saw them connected as wanting to experience as much of the richness and fullness of the human experience as I possibly could. Just basically eat life with a big spoon. And I got so frustrated professionally because I kept running into this unspoken barrier that was very palpable to me as a black African woman. And there were all these things that were happening that we couldn't call racism and we couldn't name racism because of the way in which bureaucratic jargon works, right? So you come up with a, with a more elaborate, fancy term for it. And you, you say, well, what we're doing right now is, um, this is a return 
use policy. And I'm like, well, these are human beings. These are not, you know, light bulbs that you got at Target that you are returning because you didn't like them. These are people that you're turning away because, you know, you don't want to accept them or provide help to them. And so that was one thread. And then the other thread was that I had been traveling extensively and feeling the world getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so again, with an African passport, the places where I can just show up are so few. And I, and yet my professional life kept demanding and, and even my personal life, you know, that impulse that travelers have to sort of keep going and keep experiencing. It was growing and growing and growing, but the world kept feeling like it was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the visa requirements were getting longer and longer and more elaborate and more invasive and more even, you know, structurally violent. And so the impulse really came from, at this point, looking back, wanting to look back on the previous 12 years and bottle that feeling of the world getting smaller for someone who is both trying to experience it fully and who is witnessing the most vulnerable, some of the most vulnerable communities in the world coming up against this, this push, this struggle. And like, so for example, I have an essay about going to Palermo and, and it weaves from my personal experience of trying to get to Italy, right. And having to exploit uh, uh, a long visa that had taken getting that visa. I talk, I call it a visa window in the book, Getting that visa had involved three months of bank statements and, you know, proof that you have a home here. As a single Africans get turned down for visas to Europe at a rate of like 60 or 70 percent. My only reason why I got it was because my job, my company was an American company that was sponsoring the visa. And so I had tried to volunteer with refugees in um, uh, Lampedusa and in uh, in Greece for many many for uh, many times, and I had been rejected because you can't work on. And I didn't need to. I didn't need a paid job. I wanted to volunteer. I had a paid job, um, but the idea was that basically we can't give you this visa because you're an African and we don't trust you. We don't trust you to go home when you're done. Even though I had, you know, lived abroad and gone home multiple times, and so. That's why the essay kind of oscillates between my personal experience and then what I was witnessing with the arrival of these migrant ships. And then also going into this community of young people in Palermo who was resisting the policies that were coming down from Milan and coming down from Rome because they live with this migrant crisis and and with with human beings and they and they want to stop this policy of allowing people to die um, on the high seas and and there was no way that I felt that I could write that essay without putting myself in it and without bringing all of these different pieces together and because I think together they make up this unique viewpoint that I think I hope is going to be crucial to putting a human face to the people that we label, you know, travelers, migrants, refugees, other, and, and that people will start having conversations that are a little bit more empathetic. You know, what, what you're describing is this idea of privilege, right? Whether it's a privileged passport or, you know, you get visa privileges or, or white privilege and race privilege, something like that, that, that it's, if you're on the receiving end of that in terms of like, you don't have those types of issues, 
you can become blind to the struggles that other people are experiencing because you haven't experienced them yourselves. And I think like one of the the things we're trying to do here is to like obviously bring awareness to privilege. I, th- I think that's an important step to just like become aware that these privileges exist. What can we as individuals kind of do to start creating change, more change? You know, that's one of the things that I, that's why I, I had the section on. So I, 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 I don't know if I should say spoiler alert, um, <laughs> spoiler alert, um, in the Palermo essay, that's why I, I felt it was important. So I had been there for these a couple of days, uh, about a week in Southern Italy, and really not wanting to do anything except witness and just be present and, and, and start to see the human faces behind all of these numbers and statistics that I had been seeing in, in the press and that had been devastating enough in that abstract sense, but, I, you know, to see it and, and to be able to process it uh, better. And then at the end of it, I, I go back to my Airbnb and I speak to the person who I had rented there. He was very curious about why I was there as a young man. Um, why are you here? How did you have a good time? You know, um, and I, you know, got into a conversation with him and he was like, I wish I'd known that that's what you're here for because I'm part of this anarchist collective that is trying to push back against the inhumane uh, migration policies. And I was so surprised by that. I was literally like, because everything that you read about in the news is always so, you know, pardon the cliche, but it's always so black and white. It's always these people against these people. But I think what I saw was individual people operating in a system that was making it harder for people to speak up on the side of justice and fairness. And so what I hope that people can start to do when they read this book is to see the space for individual action, even when the system is so, you know, rigid and and the space is getting smaller and smaller. Those guys in Palermo, they just literally would, yeah, I went to their meeting after we had this conversation with my Airbnb host. It was like, look, I know your flight's early in the morning, but come to our meeting, come and listen in and, and see what happens. And so I sat in on this meeting with, they were so to have a conversation with me, you know, and to say, we are not, our government isn't really speaking on our behalf here and we're doing what we can to make space for things to be different. And I hope that that's what individuals take from this, that privilege, giving up privilege is not easy. Being conscious of your privilege and interrogating it and putting it down in favor of the greater good is not easy, but it's the right thing to do because a more just system is better for all of us. And, and so you might lose, you know, your 20% of privilege, but the person who gains that 20% privilege means we are more equal and, and there's less of the extremes that we're seeing in the world today. Um, and I, I think, I think people can miss that even though the structure is so big and elaborate, you do have agency you do have the power to influence it. And just on a very basic level, like what those guys were doing in Palermo, gather, raise awareness, have the conversations, be uncomfortable, and be willing to give up some of your comfort in the favor of the greater good, in favor of the greater good. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday. 
in Norway. Not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Yeah, a word that you've used um, a few times already and I've, I've uh, noticed in the book as well, which is uh, really tying in with travel in terms of just witnessing or being a witness is this concept of... Uh, yeah, what what does that mean to you when you say that I'm I'm there to witness? I feel like there's often this idea that if you have privilege, your job is to save people, and I I don't like that idea. I think that that is what has made the aid, you know, the development that space where I was working for so many years. That's what has made it really difficult to have true justice that your job is not to save people. Your job is to make room for people to save themselves. And sometimes that doesn't mean coming in and prescribing a path. Sometimes that means getting, absorbing as much information as you possibly can and helping other people make sense of situations and see the, 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 the fullness of the situation. So when I went to Palermo, when I go to you know, Burkina Faso, when I go to all of these places, when I think about you know, what's happening in the townships in South Africa, um, I, my, I don't see my, my role as, I'm telling you about all of this stuff because I think I'm going to save all of these people. I am not so arrogant as to believe that I can save the world, but I do think that I can make room for the world to be fairer and I can make room for 
uh, people to work together. That's the quote that I, I use in the book that I love. I've always loved it. It says, if you have come to save me, then you are wasting your time. But if you have come because you believe that your liberation is connected to mine, then let us work together. And so my it's really powerful, isn't it? And so I think that my, my job is to help us work together and and show places where we can work together. And that's what witnessing is to me, is um, just so that, and also so that people, I feel like one of the most awful experiences a human being can have is that anonymous death, you know? And I think of all the people who are, walking across the desert and struggling and in cages, you know, in, in the Southern U.S. border and on boats in the Mediterranean Sea and on boats in, in the Indian Ocean. And I just think of how frustrating that, and that's part of the reason why I had that essay on Bessie Head, because he, she was stateless. She was a refugee and she suffered the same indignities that we are subjecting thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people to. And it turned out that she was the, one of the best writers, most brilliant writers ever. Can you imagine how much amazing genius and talent and creativity is getting lost on the high seas? The, 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 the couple that came up with the COVID vaccine are children of Turkish refugees, right? The, the, the couple who came up with the, the big um, vaccine. So. It's things like that that I hope I am pushing people to start to see um, in a human way and not just numbers. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And, um... But there's also funny stories. <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> well, I mean. So, like, I, I tried to. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I, this is what I love about the book, though. You know, a lot of "quote unquote" travel books are, you know, it's really the perspective of the of the sort of the person passing through, the traveler. And I feel like what you've done here with these essays is is you're more, like you said, the the world's becoming smaller in in, in these ways. I mean, we're all connected, and you're really just integrating all of these uh, world issues and your perspectives in with your travels, which is. I mean, to me, a more, uh, I, don't, I don't know the word, I, don't, I hate sometimes to put words to things because I don't want to say like authentic or holistic or wh- whatever the word is, way to kind of approach travel. Like you're, you're there to witness, but also acknowledge, right? Like what, it, what the realities of the world, there's more to it than just, uh, you know, the, you know, getting the good picture for Instagram, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because that was really something that was important to me was that. I think those of us who travel, the the way in which the travel space is organized, our momentum is just keep going, keep moving forward, keep moving forward, keep moving forward. Don't stop and reflect, get the Instagram picture, tell everybody that you were there and don't connect it to anything else, right? I went to, um, you know, what's that, Santorini and I got a picture with the white walls and it's all over my Instagram and, and now I'm done. And I think that we don't realize that, first of all, we're having a very unusual experience of the world that travel doesn't come naturally to everybody and the ability especially to travel and be in another society and not just you know go to a resort and and you know have this sort of sheltered experience but it's it's not it's not necessarily the 
experience that everybody's able to have. And so I translate that as, okay, then how can I make this travel part of the story of the world? How do I connect this to the stories of the the world and and so that it's not just an individual solitary experience but it's part of myself understanding myself and helping other people witness and helping other people understand the world i i, I say i was very deliberate about this in the introduction and you know i just know not everybody if everybody in the world travels traveled the way i do first of all the environment would be a complete disaster and and secondly you know i mean it would just it, it's, would, it wouldn't be sustainable but at the same time, we do need people to go into other cultures and help us make sense of each other because we're part of, of this connected tapestry, right? So that was really important to me. And, and I tried to break up the really heavy stuff. You know, I write about peeing and I write about, um, you know, sunrises in Burkina Faso and, and can, you know, and I, I try to break up the really heavy um, global stuff with, with the fact that there's also small stuff that's that is profound in a different way and and i hope that that's what people see because that's what travel is to me is sometimes it's showing up and you're staring at one of the seven wonders of the world and then other times it's watching a sunset with a person who you know you don't share the same language um, but you both understand that this is a spectacular sunset. Like there's profundity in the big things and in the little things too. And it's all connected and and it's all part of the story. Yeah. it's I wrestle with that sometimes, the the idea that you brought up. And I, I read that in the book. Uh, and I'm, I was glad that you acknowledged that the the potential, you know, environmental impact of travel, for example, or like you saying that it wouldn't be sustainable if everybody was doing it. And you know, as, as I got older and may, maybe a bit more, hopefully a little wiser, uh, and I had a little more travel under my belt, it, it almost seemed unfair to to acknowledge that and, and to like kind of preach that here. Well, yeah, sure, I got to do all these things before. But, you know, it's just become more and more a part of my decision-making process. You know, how you know, the impact this trip is is going to make or this potential trip, like, is it you know, is it worth it? And I don't know. It's, it's sometimes it's a difficult thing to, to reconcile. Yeah. But you know, that's the reason why I had that essay on the DRC and the mobile yeah. phones, because that's the thing, that's the wrestling that I wanted to put on the table because I, I don't know the answer. I haven't figured it out. Like if the pandemic ended tomorrow and someone gave me a round the world plane ticket, would I say no? Absolutely not. I would be <laughs> right. first in line at the airport, in the morning, let's go. Let's go. Um, Backpack on, ready to go. Let, ready to go. I know where all my stuff is. I could be packed in 30 minutes. Um, but but I, I, I can't pretend not to know, right? So I know the environmental cost and I know, and it, it would be incredibly disingenuous and harmful to pretend not to know. And so what I wanted to do with that essay was it was exactly that was to show people that you running away from the from that tension is not the answer but maybe we can start to think about conscious travel and conscious consumption and and what how do we atone you know for the damage that we're doing because we are doing damage even if our intentions are good how do we make uh, amends for that and how do we help towards the world's healing so like 
with the mobile phone, you know, where I settled in is like, I, I, I like my cam- my fancy camera and I like my, you know, fancy apps. And, and so I, I have a nice phone, but I don't replace it every year. And I try not to replace it every year. And I try to be careful with it so that at the very least, I'm trying to make amends for the damage that might have gone into owning this, this object and what it represents. And, and that's kind of, I think more travelers, we, we, we really have to start thinking consciously about the way we, we are consuming the world. Um, uh, if a bus is an option, do I have to fly? Um, if cycling is an option, do I need to rent a car? Um, can I walk? Um, can I, you know, be contribute to the environmental, to an environmental uh, group in the, in the country that I'm going to? Can I be part of the solution um, in as much as the traveling has made me part of the problem? There's a, there's a map that, uh, you know, the flight radar sort of tracks every flight in the world. And there was a map that came out over Thanksgiving weekend in the United States. And it was horrifying because all the experts had said, don't go home for Thanksgiving. And yet the sky was full of planes, um, you know, during Thanksgiving. And I thought about that. And I thought, if people won't even make these tough choices in the face of a pandemic, how do we normalize making these tough choices when everything is as close to fine as as we can get as a species? Um, And I, I really, I didn't, I don't know. I don't have the answer. I hope that I've started people on the process of asking the right questions. Yeah, it's a, the, the essay you're referring to is Small Acts of Resistance, correct? Which I love uh, mm-hmm. the title of that. I mean, the, and the spirit behind it. Yeah, I mean, like, it's so easy to be moralistic about these things. But I feel like if if those of us who know were a little bit I'm hoping that the essay comes across a little bit more gentle and more of an invitation to reflect rather than a lecture Um, and and an invitation to reflect from someone who is also grappling with those issues and who is also trying to figure it out. And I hope that that's what people get from that from that particular essay. Yeah, I I think the word that seemed to be going around is conscious, right? And this idea of being conscious, right? Like you said, it doesn't mean that you're not going to own a cell phone, but do you have to replace it every year? You know what, whether it's travel or whether it's consumption, all of that, if you're conscious of it, I feel like you do make different decisions, right? If you're, or if you're thinking with the mindset of, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, all right, I'm taking this, what you said, the round the world plane ticket that they're giving me. Okay. But like, what, what can I, what can I do to give back? from that experience, you know? Mm-hmm. And I also think like mm-hmm. the alternative sometimes, like you mentioned, oh, should I, you know, could I cycle instead of take the bus or whatever? Like sometimes those alternatives actually enhance the travel experience, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely. My One of my favorite trips, it didn't make it a book because um, it's one of those that would require an entire book of its own, was I flew to Cape, I was living in Amsterdam at the time, and I flew to Cape Town. And then I used local buses to drive from Cape Town to Nairobi. And so that's about 5,500 kilometers um, in about three weeks. It was phenomenal in the retrospect, 
But I'll tell you what, when I got to Zambia, which was four countries in, so I'd been to South Africa, I'd been to Botswana, three countries in, I was tired. I was so tired. And I really thought, oh my gosh, I can't sit on another rickety bus um, for 12 hours, 18 hours. And, and it was a point of struggle with these questions is that I had committed myself to doing this trip in a specific way because using public transit as opposed to hiring a vehicle, as opposed to being one person in a rental car, as opposed to, you know, like I really had committed myself to this cost, both for cost reasons, but also to trying and experiencing how local communities move. It was a really difficult decision. I really wanted to get on a plane and just go back. But I'm glad that I, I forcing that conscious consumption framework, as you, you've said, forced me to look at my decisions differently. That it wasn't just about my comfort, but it was also about, okay, but in the big scheme of things, how does this fit in with the kind of values that you're trying to um, abide by? And, you know, got up in the morning and took that 15 minute, 15 hour drive and uh, 12 hours, but ended up stopping somewhere where I hadn't planned to stop because I was tired. And that somewhere that I turned to stop was one of the most amazing places. Um, it's, it's on Lake Malawi and it's called um, Nkata Bay. And it's this beautiful, tiny fishing village um, on Lake Malawi, which is the equivalent, Lake Malawi covers the equivalent of one third of Malawi's landmass. So it's a huge lake, uh, but Malawi is also a small country. Um, and it's, it still remains one of the most beautiful, uh, wonderful experiences that I've ever had. It's just the most serene uh, fishing village with a little tourist community and there's diving and there's boating and all of that stuff. And um, I wouldn't have had that experience if I hadn't sort of try to reconcile what this trip would look like in retrospect with regards to the values that I was trying to live by in my own life. Right. Yeah. You, you set yourself up for that in a way, un unknowingly, I guess, just by, like you said, abiding by your values. I mean, do you have a list of, uh, like you've ever written out what your personal values are or do, you, do they just... Um, so I don't really have values written down my, the most important thing for me is to try and be a good person and to try not to, to leave the world better than um, in some way better than I found it. And, and that sort of then sort of creates whole levels of secondary values and tertiary values and, and everything. Every day you're making choices, every day you're making choices, but also, and, and I guess tied to that is the idea that, you do have the power. I do have the power to make choices. I, I am not, I, I don't just have to accept things um, because that's how they were given to me. And that's how they were told to me. I can choose. We can all choose. We can all choose to do things differently and do things better. And I, and I hope that we do. Yeah. See things differently. Right. I mean, that's uh, I think one of, one of your many gifts is just the ability to kind of question things. Right or look at it from a from a different perspective. I, I saw on Twitter you wrote, "My aim is to use my experiences of travel to try to get people to have more nuanced conversations about human mobility." And you know, how do we get more people in power to open their hearts and their borders to asylum seekers? That's a fantastic question, and I think it starts with 
us in our communities, in our homes, in our families, um, really upholding and uplifting the idea that every single person that is on that boat, that is walking across the desert. And again, that was one of the things that I was trying to do with this book was to show how I have this entire story behind me, but I show up at that border and I am, quote unquote, just an African woman. And uh, if we, whenever you see this, they, they do these surveys from time to time, or you see the stories from time to time of how a community could have voted in favor of the anti-immigration candidate. And then the, the police come for the the neighbor, their migrant neighbor, and they're like, no, 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 we didn't mean this guy. We meant all of the other ones. We meant all the bad ones, but not our guy. It's like, well, your guy, that other person is someone else's person and is a brother and a sister and whatever. So when the person is the, the character of the asylum seeker, uh, the migrant, the refugee is a human person that we can situate in our communities, we tend to be gentler about them. We tend to be more empathetic about them. We being the ordinary people. I mean, there's obviously extreme, the extreme um, racist, the extreme violent person who, you know, is not necessarily in, in this matrix, but I'm talking about ordinary people who are not motivated by hate and who are not necessarily motivated by, by racism. When we, when we see these people as not as numbers or as vague threats that are articulated by political parties or as whatever it is that power is trying to tell us who they are, we tend to be kinder about it and more empathetic about it. And so I feel like that's where we begin. We begin by reclaiming the humanity of the refugee, the migrant, the asylum seeker from political jargon and abstraction and make them human in our storytelling and in our engagements with our families and our communities and, and then speak up for them. Because another reason why I wanted to do this was I felt that there were so many people who, if they saw how these things were connected, would be more vocal publicly in defense of the traveler in all the forms, the person who is on the move in every form that they present themselves into their community. Um, sorry, I, <laughs> it's a long-winded answer, but I... I always, when I when I go to the, when I arrive at borders, especially European borders, I always have this, there's always this moment of, um, first, they're looking for a reason to exclude before they're looking for a reason to include. And then there's this moment where they get my passport and they start to go through the passport because I have a lot of stamps in their passport. And they're like, oh, I didn't, re it, it's, they don't, it's not verbalized, but you see the shift, you feel the shift of, I didn't realize that you were quote unquote good. And I want us to challenge that framework because just because a person has had all of these opportunities there's and, and other people haven't, doesn't make them more worthy than other people. We have to treat people with empathy and respect the character of the traveler, the migrant, the refugee, as a human person who has a whole story behind them, even if that story doesn't necessarily conform to our preset values about worthiness. You know, this person went to a good school. This person is a doctor. I had a cab driver in Munich once who was an Iraqi doctor. And, you know, he's a cab driver. And we started to talk broken Arabic and, and his perfect Arabic. Um, and he is just like, a lot of people don't speak to me. You know, I'm just a background figure. 
And, and, and I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm new here as well. So I'm, I'm very curious about, and taxi drivers are, are the easiest way. And he was saying, he really brought that message home. He was like, well, I always wonder, you know, I, I have this, I am going back to Iraq and I'm doing this and I sent money and I'm doing this, 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 this. And people don't always ask me about that. So this is what I hope that people will start to do. This is why I think we have to start allowing things to be complicated and allowing people to be complicated and empathizing more with each other. Hmm. Yeah. And part of that is, is being the witness, right? Like choosing to say, I'm a, I, I choose to participate, to engage with this individual, be a witness in, in their life and their life experience and to learn from that. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's one yeah. of the beautiful things about travel, you know, is to, to meet somebody like that, that you would never, you just would never meet that person in your you know, if you're hanging around in your hometown, <laughs> the chances are probably slim, right? Probably slim. And you would see, and everything again, uh, again, another reason why I spend two or three chapters talking about different African countries is everything that there was about that person, you would have received filtered through a lens that is trying to tell you a very specific story about that person. So everything, if you, if you ask people what they know about Iraq, Many people in many parts of the world wouldn't even be able to find Iraq on the map. Um, but they would be able to tell you about the war and terror and bombs and things like that. And, and I was talking to a Christian Iraqi doctor in, um, in fact, my first Arabic teacher was also um, Iraqi woman from Basra, an English teacher. And she was telling me, you know, Everybody thinks about Iraq as this really fragmented place, and, and it didn't have a perfect history. But I'll tell you what, we were the most religiously pluralistic society in the Gulf. That Iraq was a place where you could be a Christian um, uh, in a teaching, you know, in a department with, with Muslims, with, you know, Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims. And, and they had a significant Jewish population in Iraq for a long time, um, not towards the, the end of Saddam Hussein's rule. But there was, the, it was a complicated place that wasn't just defined by war and wasn't just defined by conflict. And now that all gets consumed by this media spin cycle and things like that. So how do we get people to not process other parts of the world in simple sound bites and simple narratives. I think travel is one of the easiest way to do that, that having that person who goes and witnesses and experiences and comes back and says, you know what? It was so much more than just what you see in the press. It was actually a really complicated and fun and interesting and, and dynamic place. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day. I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, 
you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people, on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. This is something I was going to go right into next, which is the media, because I feel like this uh, these sweeping generalizations or a lot of these narratives can come on a mass scale from the media. And, you know, it, it can make it harder in some ways for people to empathize on an individual level because it's uh I don't even know what to say about the media right now <laughs> with the internet and and how it is I mean, I, I wouldn't even begin to want to like figure out the solution to how we can change the media but I mean I, I'd like to I'd like to have the discussion I mean that was something I wanted to to ask you I mean I think a good uh a, a good framework uh, to have this discussion might be, you know, the media representation of of your home continent, perhaps, right? Like, if you want to have the dialogue, and and I mean, I I would just love to hear your thoughts as a yeah, as somebody I mean, who's uh, you know worked with this, yeah, both as a practitioner and and as a person, as a storyteller, and as a person who is part of the story that's being told. And I will say this: one of the reasons one of the main back and forth sort of that I had with my editor was we have two chapters in the book that are very much about three that are very much about Africa without um, Europe, without the West. And this was a very deliberate choice on my part because I, uh, one of the philosophies that I have in my academic work in my intellectual practice is Africa is not the anti-Europe. Because I think what happens is people get lazy. So you saw what happened with the coronavirus. Um, when things happened and Europe sort of cases went through the, the roof, everybody started to say, well, if it's this bad in Europe, it's going to be terrible in Africa. And if it's this bad in America, it's going to be awful in Africa. And it hasn't been. It hasn't been awful. It's been difficult and it's things are, are complicated. But the, the idea that underlies a lot of media coverage of Africa has always been that Africa is everything that Europe, especially, but the West more generally, is not. It's this unspoken Conrad, heart of darkness. Uh, and I talk a little bit about this in the introduction. And so one of the challenges that I set for myself as a writer, always as a storyteller, is how can I tell people stories about Africa in which Africa is not set up as what Europe is not. And that's why those three chapters are in there, is to see that we are complicated. And Africa is a complicated place. And it's a complicated place full of humans, not magical people who are here to save. You know, a lot of people come to Africa on and uh, African countries on trips and they post on their Instagram about how they hugged a poor kid and now their life has changed. And 
you know, that Africa's place in, in the Western mythology is to save Westerners from themselves and, you know, let go of your materialistic uh, whatever. And I just think that's, insert expletive, um, because we are just, we're people, and we are people riddled with the same complexities and the same joys and the same hopes and frustrations that anybody anywhere else is. And that's where the media really fails. The foreign media, I would say, but even African media to some extent, that's where we really fail African people because we try and either have these tropes confirmed or we are writing against the tropes, but whether you're confirming the trope or writing against the trope, you're still working within the limits that are defined by the trope, right? And and so that's what I want. I think that's where the solution begins. Let African people and African societies be complicated. We we are, and in your storytelling, let us be complicated. Allow for things to not always fit neatly into the preset categories that you're either writing about or writing against. Um, and 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 when when we talk about um, human mobility, there's always that absence of well, how did Africans do borders before you know? Western security apparatus sort of tells us Muslims are this and Christians are that. You know, like I live in a country that is 30% Muslim and I grew up in neighbors in a neighborhood in the city where I had neighbors who were Bora Muslims and Ahmadi Muslims and Sunni Muslims. I knew more about Islam um, than if I, even if I went to a university in the United States, I, as a high school student, I would have been able to give a lecture on the different types of Islam that exist because I grew up in a pluralistic society. But now we are importing this war on terror stuff and they're telling us that, you know, Muslims are this and Christians are that. And so these stories start to creep into the story that we tell ourselves about this country that we live in. This is a pattern that's repeating itself across Africa and it's not our story. So how do we, instead of, you know, uncritically consuming those stories that we're being told, how do we actually be, tell the truth about who we are, about the fact that, you know, Sudan is, is not just, uh, that Christianity was established in Sudan in the sixth century and some of the oldest Christian religious frescoes in the world are in the Nuba region of Sudan and that the the Nubian community in Sudan built pyramids long before the Egyptians did, and that actually the pyramids in Egypt are modeled on the pyramids of Meroe. That steel comes from Meroe that was first forged in Africa, this metal that um, has changed the industrial world was first forged in Sudan. Like, let, our, let, let African stories, let African communities be complicated and be rich and be diverse in our histories. We are not, Africa is not just the anti-Europe. It's actually a really fascinating and complicated place on its own terms, for better or for worse. Um, and, and my hope is that those chapters show people that it's that, that complexity, that it's not always um, cut and dry. Yeah, I mean, and this is part of that, right? Like your willingness to share stories, to put the time and effort you yeah. uh, put into your work. And for us, or those of you listening, hey, pick up 
this book, right? <laughs> Traveling while black or like, you know, like I, I know you mentioned um, somewhere, I can't remember where I read it, that you spent, maybe it was, maybe it was in the book actually where you spent a year not reading any books written by white white men for one year. I think this is a wonderful idea. So you can all start with this book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. I mean, I like it, but you know, I know the author. So. <laughs> <laughs> How has travel changed your relationship with fear, if it has? Completely. I When people who see me today, people who've known me my whole life, they don't recognize me. I was always the person who checked everything, checked it twice, checked it a third time, and then ended up not doing it anyway. Um, I, I was always coloring within the lines, you know, do the right thing, hyper, but hyper cautious because we live in a very, Kenya is a very risk of our society. Um, this is one of the things that comes from, from living in, uh, being growing up working class millennial in Africa meant that you grew up at a time when everything was shrinking. So we had economic collapse in the 80s and then everything started to shrink. The universities got smaller and the space basically for, for a middle class, working class life got so much smaller. And so this constant fear that you might lose anything is one of the thing, everything, and, es- and especially, you know, in the shadow of the HIV AIDS pandemic, this conscious precarity is what defines the African millennial experience in a lot of African countries. And so we we are, a lot of us are raised to be hyper cautious um, because you don't know if you might just lose everything on, on a heartbeat. And when I started to travel, I started to contend with a lot of the things, limits that I had put on myself that didn't necessarily reflect the reality of the world. And a great example is at the end of that, when I started that Cape to Nairobi trip, I was terrified. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to find. I don't know how. I literally, I had no plan. This was the first time I had, I had done a cross country no it was the second time I'd done this multi-country trip but it was it was like I didn't all I knew was that I had to be in Nairobi certain date everything else was being fully improvised and I got there and I started to take the first bus then the second bus then the third bus and it slowly starts Mm -hmm. you realize that people are doing this every day like people are taking buses (laughs) from Cabrone to Walvis Bay every day, thousands of people. And they get You're just one of them that day, right? (laughs) You're just one of them that day. And I was like, this is a revelation. (laughs) (laughs) That's so awesome. And now I'm, that little shift, that little shift has just changed the game completely not just with regards to travel but with regards to life we are told to be afraid of things um and some fear is good right because some fear is the reason why for example we are being cautious about a pandemic and we're being cautious about crossing the street you know look both ways and what i've learned is how to calibrate fear and how to put it in its rightful place don't let it paralyze you. Don't let it make you do nothing. Make it part of your your motivation. 
um, in one way or the other, sort of sit with the fear and don't run away from it, but try and figure out how to make it fit into, into your journey. Um, Nelson Mandela has a great quote um, in his book, A Long Walk to Freedom, and he says, um, I had learned that bravery was not the absence of fear, but the ability to act in spite of it. And I think that's the most important thing that travel teaches anybody that especially backpacking and especially backpacking um, if you're doing it in a conscious way is you're never going to fully stop being afraid of being by yourself in a new place. But bravery is really the ability to, to work with that fear and to not let it stop you from moving. I, I love how you said that applies to travel and life. Right. I mean, we could we could just leave it out like that. But that simple concept of like, hey, thousands of people are doing this every day, you know, whether it's riding a bus or starting a business. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Who says that you can't be one of them? You should be one of them. We'll be one of them. <laughs> or writing a book, you or know, writing- which is no small thing. <laughs> or writing a book or, you know, being on a podcast like this. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Um, what's something new you recently learned about yourself? Oh, wow. Isn't that a fantastic question? Um, there's so many levels that I could go. Let me, let me keep it like we've had such a heavy conversation. I think one of my, the, 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 in the course, this is my second book. In the course of writing both of my books, I realized that I can only listen to one song um, when I'm working on a project. So the song kind of has the spirit of whatever I'm trying to do. And so there's a song on my iPod that I've listened to 1,700 times. And so that I didn't, I, I didn't realize until when I was after the first book. Uh, and then it happened again. And I was like, this is weird, man. <laughs> but I can't, <laughs> I can't change the song. And, and if it's an essay, if it's, a, if it's like, like an essay for a magazine or if it's like a book project, I will only listen to one song. Um, what song is it? You got to tell us. <laughs> each, each piece is different. Each piece has its own song. So it just depends oh, okay. on how I'm trying to get into, what, I'm, what vibe I'm trying to get into with the book. And sometimes it's rap and sometimes it's hip hop and sometimes it's classical music. And, and the, the weird part is I never know which song it's going to be. But then when I have the song and I'm at my desk, I'm like, okay, this is the song. And it sticks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I'm going to try that. Like, I mean that the, the sort of the natural version of that might be like for me to, you know, if you're going to the gym or something, you're like, all right, I'm going to listen to like some hype music that pumps me up. But I haven't really thought about applying that to, to work. Right. Like, all right, I'm going to write on this topic. So let me see what, like, what could be like my soundtrack yeah, but, and, <laughs> to and, that right. It's it's it's. I think what happens is that it becomes kind of like meditation, that it, it becomes yeah. like a constant in the background and sort of gets your your writing at the tempo of the thing. I think so. I mean, this is all like I mm-hmm. I don't I genuinely don't have like a like a well reasoned uh, answer to it. But it just when I noticed it, I was like, this <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you ever struggle with the like the creative side, uh, like remaining in the travel experience versus kind of what's going on in your head and thinking about, 
oh, I might write about this. Like I might be inspired to write about this later. Let me think about like how that would be. Do you, do you ever have that struggle as like somebody who's writing about travel? Um, n- not in pure terms. And, I'll, and the reason why is that I journal and I've been journaling for uh, 20, what's 1999, um, 22 years now, 21 years now. And so that kind of takes the pressure off because I know that the ideas will be on the page in some form. And then I just have to go back to it um, um, at some point. Um, and that anxiety, it relieves you of that anxiety of if I have to write it down and otherwise I'll forget. Um, but I will say this, I was reading Toni Morrison's book, uh, Mouthful of Blood, her last uh, collection. And there's a part where she talks about how she doesn't, uh, writers do this sometimes. Um, I did it for a long time. And you keep a, a pen and a notebook next to your bed because when you're just about to fall asleep, some brilliant sentence or brilliant word or brilliant idea will come to you and you sort of sketch it out and then go to sleep because you don't want to forget it when you wake up. And she says that she doesn't, she, she said that she didn't, she doesn't do that. She didn't do that um, because she always believed that if it was the right sentence, it would come back to her. And as profound and as elaborate as I thought that was, as a writer, it kind of gave me anxiety because I thought, what? No. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> it's gone forever and ever and ever. Um, so I'm, I'm trying it. Um, it's still a work in progress. I still don't fully trust myself with that but you know tony morrison was a genius and i'm i'm willing to mm. give her the benefit of the doubt on this <laughs> um, yes but uh um, yeah she definitely deserves the benefit of the doubt you know I mean? right. right so like yeah but i i i i'm i'm reading myself because i did it for so many years i also had that little like just a pen in the papers in case that sleep sentence comes comes in um yeah, but that's how I manage that anxiety is, is journaling and and uh, keeping a little notebook with me just for um, inspiration um, if it strikes. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's a great sort of advice for any traveler, right? Whether you want to do something with the content or not, it's kind of nice to have. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a good old fashioned like pen and paper guy myself too. Yeah, you know, like the. Yeah, I like the the pen and the paper. Yeah, thing, you know, I don't know, yeah. uh, something one less screen to look at. I guess. <laughs> True story. <laughs> True story. Well, I I so appreciate your time, and I just loved uh, getting to have this conversation with you again. I'll, I'll mention the book "Traveling While Black: Essays Inspired by a Life on the Move." Um, Nanjala, it's uh, it's been a real pleasure. Do you have any uh, like if you want to share any websites or? anything where people can find you feel free to to do that um i'm on twitter a lot some might say too much um and that's always a fun place to engage with people um and i i do a lot of you know like you heard do a lot of interesting work um in different fields i do have other books out um on different subjects i check those out if you have a chance um my first book is about digital democracy and analog politics and it is about Kenya, but it's more broadly a story about how technology is changing the way we do politics. And I wrote it before the US and UK elections. So it's really interesting to look back at all the stuff that's happened since then and think, yeah, 
um, this happened to us two years before it happened to you. And so if you want to keep that momentum up of learning about how other places can be complicated and, and have lives that are not necessarily measured relative to Europe, that might be a good place to start. Thanks for putting out the important work that you're doing and for taking the time to just share with us today. And, and yeah, I just really appreciate it. And I hope that uh, maybe we can have a conversation in person one day. I don't know if you ever come through Norway. I'm in Oslo, Norway. So if you're ever coming through, if I'm ever coming through uh, yeah. your town, then Please it would be great. To, yes, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. There you have it, my conversation with Nanjala. Thank you so very much for your time, Nanjala. And please uh, pick up this book if you get a chance, Traveling While Black. It's, uh, it's a very diverse book in many ways. You know, a lot of travel books just focus on the travel, right? But uh, again, as you heard in the conversation, she's talking about a lot of uh, global issues. And I really think the back of her book sums it up best. These are thoughtful, original reflections on migration and identity from an African woman abroad. And it says, what does it feel like to move through a world designed to limit and exclude you? What are the joys and pains of holidays for people of color when guidebooks are never written with them in mind? How many black lives today are impacted by the othering legacy of colonial cultures and policies? What can travel tell us about our sense of self, of home, of belonging and identity? And why? Has the world order become hostile to human mobility as old as humanity itself when more people are on the move than ever? And that's just right from the back of the book here and uh, sums it up pretty well. So, uh, I don't know, fascinating book and fascinating individual. Thanks again to Nanjala for stopping by the show. And, you know, she touched on this idea of her relationship with fear. How did travel change that? That's something we talked about during the interview segment. And, you know, that really got me thinking, of course, personally, what that means to me. You know, if I ask myself that question, how has travel changed my relationship to fear? And I'm not sure if I'm able to articulate this properly, but I would say that it was a game changer if I had to use one word, I guess that's a hyphenated word. Okay, you're calling me out. Is that two words? Is a hyphenated word two words or one word? Anyway, is game changer even hyphenated? Whatever. We're not talking about grammar here. <laughs> it was a game changer, right? Because you're you're thrown into situations and you're you're thrown out into the world and you're all of a sudden confronted with, you know, whatever situations, people, things that you've never been uh, around in your life, right? And with some of those things comes fear, right? Whether it's a visceral fear of maybe walking down a dark street in a city you're not familiar with at two o'clock in the morning, trying to figure out where the hell you are because you're lost and you can't find your hostel. <laughs> not that that ever happened. It happened a lot. Or um, being jumped by a gang of robbers, which is something that happened to be on my first backpacking trip. You know, those are uh, pretty easy things to kind of point out. But also, you know, it's like sort of the everyday fears of, uh, well, maybe I don't know where I'm going to sleep or, you know, landing in a city, not being able to find a place to stay. 
you know, all of these sort of things that you might not be used to within the comforts and confines of your home where everything's sort of set up and easy and you can go downstairs and take a hot shower and, you know, chances are nobody's going to come into your home and do anything to you, you know, fairly, fairly safe in your, in your home uh, town. You kind of know where things are, you know, then you get out into the wild world and it's like, bam, anything can happen at any moment. And you have to recalibrate to that. And I think that's what one of the things travel did for me. You recalibrate in a different way and you're exposed to so much that you're inevitably going to come across things or have run-ins with people, places, or things that uh, bring up fears, right? And then you have to, you're in the situation. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You have to kind of push through and overcome them. And it just builds a, a certain muscle. Again, this is very hard to articulate, and this is obviously different for each person. But for me, it was a game changer, right? It just uh, it just gave me a lot of confidence in different ways that I could overcome certain things. So I would love to hear from you. How has travel changed your relationship with fear? Again, you can uh, send me a voice memo. Uh, just open up the app on your phone and email to jason at zerototravel.com or go to zerototravel.com slash speak. It's a real easy link. You just hit a record button. You have 90 seconds to make a recording and you can leave me a message there and maybe we'll put you on the podcast. But I'd love to hear how has travel changed your relationship to fear. I I probably do a whole episode on that. I feel like I have a lot more to say and stories to tell and things like that. So if you want that, let me know. But, uh, you know, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. I know you're busy. You got some stuff to do today. So, uh, but before I let you go, you know, I, I got to say thanks to uh, somebody who took the time to go to that link, zero to travel.com slash speak and leave me a message. That was uh, Mela. And she left me this message. I, I, I don't know if you remember in the last episode, I was asking you what I should do with my country's patch collection. And uh, <laughs> she gave me some advice. So I'll play that message now. Hi, Jason. Uh, my name's Mayla. I emailed you a couple months back about right when I was leaving to go teach English in South Korea. And I'm about four months in, and so far it's going really well. Um, I am itching to travel some more, but it's a good situation until travel opens up, I guess. Anyways, I recently listened to your uh, podcast where you talked about collecting patches during your travels, and I do the exact same thing. I have like a collection stored up, um, and my plan is to find the perfect pair of jeans to put them on. I'm still looking for the jeans, but I have faith one day they'll come through, but my backup is to put them on a jean jacket, so that's also an option. You got to find a nice piece of denim. That you can keep. That's my advice. <laughs> Anyways, thanks for all that you do. I've really been enjoying listening to your podcast um, while I'm itching more and more to get back out there and explore. Anyways, have a good one. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Mayla. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Vote for the jeans or a jean jacket. You know, I do have a pretty awesome old corduroy jacket. Maybe that could that could be the thing. I don't know. I got a lot of patches, you know. It could be It'd be pretty blinged out, I must say. But uh, let me uh, let me experiment with that. I'll pull out my old patch collection, see what I can throw it on. I think my original idea was like to put them all on a bandana or something and hang them on the wall. But uh, you know, what? They're wearable, right? I do got some jeans with some holes in them, legit holes, not the kind of holes where they you know cut them for fashion reasons. 
you've seen that, right? Yeah, yeah. You buy a pair of jeans and they're already ripped. Like, I don't know how that works. How does that work? Does somebody just uh, sit in the factory and like hand cut those things? And we're like, all right, this looks cool. Anyway, all my jeans have holes in them from, I don't know, rolling around on the ground and doing stuff, I guess. Uh, but maybe I should use some of these patches to patch up my jeans. I could spread them across the uh, the entire clothing collection, which isn't very large. But uh, anyway, enough about the patch collection. Uh, <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for your advice. Don't forget, before I let you go, if you haven't done so yet, please sign up over at zerototravel.com. Join the newsletter list. You can find out about all the happenings going on off the podcast, workshops and you know, the newsletter that I send out, I try to send it out weekly. Usually it's a, it ends up being bi-weekly, but do a nice roundup of some interesting things that I find online, talk a little travel. Uh, we'll share the latest podcast episodes with you and things like that. So I'd love to stay in touch with you there. Just go to zero to travel.com, sign up, and uh, then you can... Uh, Join the email newsletter right now. I have a bonus audio file, three uh, best ways to save money for travel that you'll get when you sign up. Okay, let me pull um, pull out a quote here from the drawer, the old drawer, the old quote drawer. Okay, this is from Dogen Zenji, one of my faves. Uh, Enlightenment is intimacy with all things. Boom! Mind blown. Enlightenment is intimacy with all things. Oh, I have a lot to say about that, but I'm I'm not going to do it today. I'm going to let you go. Smile, have a wonderful day. Take a chance today. Do something do something that fills your soul with goodness, you know. Write a good friend a letter or call somebody up you haven't talked to and tell them you love them or take a little take a little day trip for yourself. Do something for you. Take a little you time. Thanks so much for listening and I will see you next time. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.